Part two of our exclusive look into election technologies and how secure the voting process really is. November is coming up, and as this deadline looms ever closer, things are getting crazier and crazier. Now, if you already didn't listen to part one of this podcast series, go wherever you get your podcast for Tech You Should Know, listen to part one, and we'll be waiting right here with part two when you get done. Okay, so you're back. Right. Did you see that first presidential debate? My gosh, it was wild. I read a headline from the OC Register the other day that read, the presidential debate quickly descends into chaos. I couldn't help but think, didn't it all start in chaos? Every election comes with mudslinging. That's been the truth since America was founded. Even Teddy Roosevelt put his opponents down. Though I'd say his approach was a lot more subtle than today's politicians. The great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated it is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. Things sure have changed since those days. Now that everyone has a phone in their pockets, rumors spread faster than ever before. We talked all about disinformation in part one. And if you haven't heard it yet, again, just make sure that you do give it a listen. Suffice it to say... Voters have a lot more on their plate than ever before. You've got to wade through all the muck of misinformation. You've got to cast a wary eye over your Twitter feed. And you really have to constantly research every little thing to make sure that you're not being misled, especially by the algorithms that are all over social media. And it's also pretty hard to do with emotional ads popping up that also try to sway your vote. We have a lot to think about. And on top of that, we have to worry about the tech involved in our elections. Election reporter Max Eddy said something really great in this last episode. An election is a huge, huge thing, and it's not just poll workers and it's not just voters. It's every little thing that enables that to happen. So it's the people who handle shipping the voting machines. It's the printer that prints the ballots. It's the bus that gets the voter to the polling place. It's all of the organizations working behind the scenes to ensure that the money and the material is available to make an election happen. And if any piece of those is compromised in some way, it can slow down an election. It can make an election seem less, um, less believable. And I completely agree. Elections are enormous. They've got so many moving parts, which means there are a lot of opportunities for hackers to infiltrate our tech. Nobody wants their vote compromised. That's why we're making this podcast. After all, in this swirly cloud of turmoil, I want to be your eye in the storm. We all need the calm, unbiased truth we can get. So today, we're going to talk about election security. If you're planning to vote, you'll definitely want to listen to this. Now, just to refresh all of our memories, in part one of this episode, we talked about disinformation. We also talked a lot about voting booths. But what about the other technology that's involved in elections? There's a lot of stuff you really have to watch out for. Did you know that one of people's biggest ideas about election night is wrong? That's right. We're going to go into that and clear up the fog later on. And by the end of this episode, you'll be so well-equipped for voting day. Stick around. This is Essential Listening for anyone who plans to take part in this historic election. Remember when I said earlier that the 2020 presidential election will be historic? 
that wasn't really just my opinion. It's backed by data. A new study from the Pew Research Center says we can expect a record turnout in 2020. In fact, the director of the U.S. Elections Project thinks voter turnout this year will be the highest it's been in a whole century. If he's correct, that means there'll be 145 million votes this year. Imagine a stampede of people just running to the polls. So I want you to be prepared in case you're going to be voting in person. Expect some long lines and even longer wait times. You might want to bring a snack. And if you're listening from sunny Arizona, where this podcast originates, let me tell you, it's hot. You better bring a water bottle. The last thing you want to do is pass out from heat exhaustion while you're waiting to vote. But back to the exciting part, the voting itself. Here's what you've got to know. Whether you're putting in a paper ballot or voting by a machine, there's a computer involved. And unfortunately, all computers have vulnerabilities. You know that. It's just the nature of software. And as we're coming closer to Election Day, tons of folks are concerned that their vote could be compromised. It's a fair concern to have. After all, you've got to worry not only about the technology we use, but also about the people who are creating that tech. Here's an interesting little fun fact for you. Did you know that much of our election infrastructure is built by private vendors? Yes, election officials will maintain and build some election websites, ballots, and machines. But so much of this stuff is privately owned. And according to the Brennan Center for Justice, there's almost no federal regulation of these vendors. These people design and maintain the systems we need for voting. They control how you vote and how your vote is counted. Here's something else that might also surprise you. According to the Washington Post, more than 80% of today's voting systems are related to just three vendors. That's right, only three. A bit of a monopoly, I would say, going on there. Imagine a cyber attack against any of those three companies. That could be totally devastating. And it's not just the voting machines at risk. We've also got to be concerned about voter registration, databases, or electronic poll books. And yes, those are also supplied by, you guessed it, private companies. You wouldn't think elections could be used for profit, but what are you going to do? So let me break it down. Luckily, there is at least a little bit of oversight in election technology. For instance, there's a federal certification test for voting machines. But this is the scary part. It's not mandatory. Some vendors do put their machines through a federal security test, which tests them pretty rigorously. But not every machine you use is guaranteed to have passed that security test. Just another thing to watch out for. Now, let's take a look at the private vendors who create that election technology. Here's a clip from Wired. Those private vendors touch every aspect of our elections, and there, there is zero regulation at the federal level. And what that means is you can have things like happened in uh, Maryland recently, where they discovered that one of their vendors for their registration system was actually owned by a, a, a Russian oligarch with close ties to Vladimir Putin. They would not have known that if the FBI hadn't informed that. And... In fact, um, that had been the case for a while before they found out about it. Pretty scary. It's a good thing that the FBI found out about that. But you can't help but wonder if there are other shady vendors out there. I mean, what if there are other vendors with bad intentions? Who hasn't the FBI caught yet? 
But before you get too worried, I want to reintroduce Max Eddy to our podcast. He's PC Mag's senior security analyst. He's been reporting on election technology for many years, and I'm happy that we're hanging out with him because he has spoken to a ton of professionals about election tech. He's got his finger on the pulse of the threats, which we're going to talk about here. So, Max, let's just start here. Let's begin with some of the threats that voters have to watch out for. To start off with, are we expecting any type of cyber attacks on election tech? It's a little unclear. I don't think I could tell you um, how often it happens. We do know that it happens, though, and I think it's safe to assume that any piece of critical infrastructure, and by that I mean everything from nuclear power plants to the systems that make your um, stoplights work uh, to election systems, are probably being uh, probed constantly by adversaries. Right. And what are these adversaries looking for exactly? Uh, Either looking for a means to extract information from them or as a means to do some kind of attack uh, on an election. Can you give us some examples? So in the 2016 election, um, it's been widely reported and confirmed by, uh, I believe, the Senate panel that investigated this, that there were attacks in every state on some piece of election infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. There were tons of jaw-dropping headlines. I remember that. The FBI director at the time shared some startling news. Listen to the CNN clip. There have been a variety of scanning activities, which is a, a preamble for potential intrusion activities, as well as some attempted intrusions at voter registration databases beyond those we knew about in July and August. We are urging the states just to make sure that their deadbolts are thrown and their locks are on. And that was just the last election. Can you imagine how much scanning and probing is going on right now as we speak? And of course, we're all wondering, where are these attacks coming from? So, Max, what do you say to that? So, and this was, these attacks were attributed to Russia. So we know it happens. We're also fairly confident that no votes were changed in the last election. Okay, that's a nice ray of good news. But again, what is probably more damaging is that they were able to get in there in the first place. So if you were able to, let's imagine a scenario where during the next election, like maybe the day before, a unnamed hacker puts out evidence that they were able to access all the voting machines in North Carolina or Florida or Pennsylvania, one of the swing states, that could really uh, under that could really undermine confidence that those votes will be counted correctly. That could create a political firestorm that could make people uh, uncertain about whether or not they should go vote, whether or not it's safe to vote. Um, That's the kind of confusion and chaos that can come without even changing a vote. It's definitely good to remember the ulterior motives these people have. They want to create chaos in our country. You may think it's a bad thing, and it certainly is, but these people see it differently. Chaos. A gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Basically, the people who try to infiltrate our election, they want chaos. Because when things are crazy and everyone's scrambling, people can, well, slip through the cracks. After all, everyone's distracted by these wildfires. And if these hackers were to breach our defenses, who knows what could happen? There's a ton at stake. And a single hack or a single lie that people believe could be disastrous. And one of the best ways to cause problems is by using disinformation. Um, I am very concerned about disinformation and misinformation. Um, COVID also plays into that. And it's a really, really effective tool. And I'm actually not convinced that 
we've done enough to inoculate the American electorate about mis misinformation and disinformation. It's, it's not something we've had to deal with in this country very often, especially not from foreign actors. And we all got a crash course in it in 2016, but there's still these conflicting narratives about whether or not that even happened. And that makes it much harder to educate people about how to protect themselves so that they can vote and that they can um, be protected against misinformation, disinformation. I'm a firm believer that one of the best ways to stay safe is to stay educated. So let's now talk about some of the cracks in our election system, the weak spots that serve as points as entry for hackers. Max, tell us about the roads people use to infiltrate our election systems. Where exactly do they go? There's also a lot of information and other systems that are attached to elections. So like voter registration databases, for example, some of those are, are connected to the Internet in some way. There are voter registration portals where you can go and like check the status of your registration or maybe even uh, I'm not certain. I think it depends state by state whether or not you can register to vote online. But um, if there was an attack on one of those, for example, all of a sudden it becomes much harder to know whether or not you can vote. When in doubt, you can always call up a government agency. After all, even if a website's been hacked, an official will know the proper dates. You can call up the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, for example. They've got a big list of state-by-state -state phone numbers you can call with any questions. There's also rockthevote.org you could reach out to. Basically, here, always remember this. If you're ever in doubt, don't be shy. You deserve to know all about the elections you're taking part in. There are people who will just welcome your call. After all... It's an election. All of our voices combined will determine our country's future. If you think about it, an election is the perfect example of that phrase, we're all in this together. It means we're equally threatened by potential hackers, too. So, Max, some other tricks voters need to watch out for. Tell us about the ways that, say, people try to meddle in our elections. Um, you could put, an attacker could put misleading information on say, like an official vote website or on one of the other sites, um, a popular like uh, a news site, for example, that says that the date of the election has been changed. You know, those kind of tactics are, are very old and very common, but, but they're also very effective. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. A recent podcast I did about Amazon scams touched on that, too. Tricksters are innovative. They always find new ways to hurt others. But a lot of them use same old techniques, just in different disguises. And we should also not count out domestic attacks on our on our uh, voting infrastructure. You know, you just do a quick Google and you will find numerous stories of, you know, leaflets with like the wrong date to vote printed on them being dropped off in someone's in someone's driveway. Like that kind of dirty electioneering is as old as American democracy is. So there's a lot of media attention towards Russia in general, but there are also threats from all around the globe. Heck, maybe even your next-door neighbor. It may sound strange. That person you see every day is suddenly hunched over their computer trying to hack a government website. I'm just saying don't count out the possibility. Stranger things have happened. We're going to talk about some of these strange things later on. And coming up, we're going to be talking about the four types of attacks that you've really got to watch out for. Election engineers are crafty, but so are we. And once you've learned what to watch out for, you'll be one step above the bad guys. We're also going to bust open one of the biggest mistakes people make on election night. So stay right where you are. We've got some really great stuff you don't want to miss. Welcome back to Tech You Should Know. Today, we're speaking with PC Meg's senior security analyst, Max Eddy. You're going to learn even more about election tech and how people can hack it. 
Now, Max, you wrote all about the specific ways election engineers work. And of course, spreading lies is their favorite trick. It can take many different forms. So let's talk about some of them. We'll start off with website defacing, since that ties into what we're talking about earlier. Basically, this attack targets election websites, and the hacks don't even have to touch the voting systems themselves. There's one little change they can make to cause total chaos. You want to guess what it is? Okay, they could change the website's results. It's that simple. If that happens, for example, government officials would have to throw a press conference to confirm the actual winner. They lose public trust. And as Max and I spoke about in the last episode, that can shake a democracy's very foundation. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, the election website for North Carolina was breached. Hackers got into the state board system. Luckily, they didn't get into the website's front page, though. According to the state board's executive director, hackers threw up pages like, I love Islamic State. They got a call from the FBI alerting them. Luckily, officials were able to take down the pages pretty quickly. In 2019, phishing scams flew to the 120 inboxes of Florida elections offices. There's really no downplaying this threat. Max, tell me your thoughts about this. Have you ever seen someone deface an election website? So I haven't seen uh, any specific examples of uh, website defacing or bogus tweets um, directly attached to this election, but I know they're happening all the time. <laughs> um, we we know that there are domestic and foreign actors that are very, very active on social media platforms, sending out fake information um, to further whatever their causes are. You know, that's a really good point. They also go for social media accounts, too, not just websites. Now, you mentioned there are other causes. What really are these people trying to achieve? I mean, do they have any type of hidden agenda or what's their motivation? Uh, In the previous election, we saw that some of those causes were just trying to build up one candidate over another one. Uh, I wasn't necessarily trying to change votes, but we also saw that social media platforms and fake tweets were used to mobilize people to go to fake protests, for example, uh, to join fake groups and that they were sent more um, disinformation through those groups. Um, These kind of like natural looking uh, outlets are a great way by which uh, these attackers can reach individual voters. Okay, those are just dirty tricks, creating fake websites to mislead voters and protesters. Imagine you're passionate about a cause and you see an event online. You go there eager to fight for your rights and you're all alone. It sounds to me like a technique these people use to crush their opposition spirit. Speaking of which, did you know that a single typo could steal your vote? That's right. Bad faith actors are creating websites that mimic national and state voter sites. And here's how they get you. They register a domain with a similar URL to the authentic website. For example, instead of wellsfargo.com, they'll call their website Wellfargo without the S. When you hit enter, you're taken to a page that looks exactly like the real site. You enter your personal information, your account details, and presto, they've got exactly what they need. This technique has a term. It's called typo squatting. It's pretty descriptive. Here's the kicker. This approach could kill your chance to vote. Let's say someone copies an official government domain. Of course, just one letter's off. They craft their website to look just like the real website. All they change is one itsy-bitsy little thing, the voting deadlines. You type what you think is the official website into your browser, but uh, you make a typo. One single keystroke could change your fate. Now that you're on this fake website, you're vulnerable to misinformation. 
You look up the deadline to register as a voter. But because you trust the website, it's real after all. But the deadline passes and you realize that you've missed your chance to vote. A hacker stole your freedom. And that's just an example off the top of my head. If you think about it for a while, I'm sure you could come up with tons of ways that typo squatting could hurt voters. So here's the bottom line. Be smart. Pay attention. Take extra care. Slow down to make sure that your information is coming from an official government website. Otherwise, you could lose your vote. Max, we're talking about website defacing and the goals that these hackers have. Anything else that you're trying to achieve? The goal, as always, with the um, with these kind of disinformation campaigns is that regular people will start to regurgitate the information themselves. They will pass it on to people they know. They'll retweet it. They'll become the conduits that kind of launders the information from the, uh, from the attacker to the rest of the world. That's a good point. Some people may hear the word misinformation and just... <laughs> Don't worry about that. They may think, so what? I'm smart. I'm never going to fall for anything like that. I am wearing my thinking cap. Well, that type of attitude could set you up for total failure. If you don't have your eyes and ears open, you could fall for a lie online. And as we've said earlier, these people use sophisticated techniques to trick you. And as Max said, you could wind up as a so-called information launderer. But yeah, we should really, especially in the run-up to this election or any election, or really at any time now that I think about it, um, people need to be very careful about what they see, how they interact with things on social media. Um, they need to maybe just take a second before they retweet something, take a second before they start tweeting about it themselves, um, read an article, ask themselves, if, does this seem possible or feasible? See if anyone else is reporting it. If it's only reported in one place you've never heard of, it's not likely to be true. Um, and there's always, you can always wait, you know, and, and I know that new news is moving really, really fast these days, but sometimes just waiting a few hours can be the difference between confirming a story and, and tweeting disinformation. That's right. So it, it really helps to uh, interrogate everything that you see online right now, because we know that social media is where these uh, attackers are operating. So Max, let's talk about another threat you've reported on. The denial of service attack, just in case our listeners don't know what that might be, can you explain it? Yeah, sure. So a, a denial of service attack or a DOS or a distributed denial of service attack, a DDOS, uh, it's all the same concept where uh, you flood a particular site service or what have you with a, just a bunch of requests, and that prevents legitimate requests from reaching that site or service. Give us an example. So you can sort of imagine the scenario where uh, if you want to go to like a deli counter to pick up a sandwich and 100,000 people get in front of you, they just rush in the door. That's a denial of service attack. You cannot get up to the front to get your sandwich because there's all these people in the way. This attack tries to wear down voters. And like your analogy, I'm imagining my favorite restaurant, Ocean's 44, Scottsdale, Arizona. Just give me the ahi pokey and a Pinot Grigio and I'm just a happy girl. But for a denial of service attack, everybody in the restaurant would be getting their food before me, and I wouldn't be so happy about that. A denial of service attack tries to make voters feel the same way. And if you're able to coordinate those kind of attacks, they can be really, really effective. That's how you can, say, make a website inaccessible is just because it's being hit by so, so many requests. 
and that prevents people who legitimately want to contact that website from being able to get to it. So a denial of service attack in an election context is a little bit different because that's not necessarily going to like throw off the vote, but that could bring down really important pieces of election infrastructure. It might make it really difficult to, for example, access voter rolls. It might make it difficult for voters to find information because a website is taken down with a DOS attack. It's a really effective tool that's widely used and widely understood. All right, moving on, Max, what other ways could this attack hurt our election? Another way denial of service attacks can fit into elections is in election reporting. If the system by which the votes are reported to the central authorities is hit with a denial of service attack, it's not going to change the outcome, but it could slow down the process and it could, again, cast doubt on the process itself. We kind of saw something like this during the Democratic caucuses earlier this year where they were doing their, the Iowa caucuses in the, the normal fashion, which is a little bit of obscure and unusual. They were going to report the results using a special app and the app wasn't working. So the people who were running the caucuses failed over to their backup system, which was to use the phone. They were going to call a specific number and report the results. That number was posted on one of the Chan message boards, and a bunch of trolls just kept calling it and calling it and calling it and prevented actual poll workers from being able to report the results. Those results were eventually counted, but it created a lot of confusion and caused a lot of chaos in the course of an already politically charged election. That's like a really simple, very non-technical way that you can do a denial of service attack and have some impact on an election. I think the thing people will remember of the Iowa caucuses is that they were a mess. They might not remember exactly why, but that denial of service attack certainly helped that. And it certainly will cause a lot of panic. There's so much election meddling out there. Just searching for the truth can feel like you're running through a war zone. Now, switching gears, let's talk about election engineers causing delays. I want to get more into like the technological weeds of this issue. What are they targeting exactly, and where will we see these delays? So digital poll books are a tool that they use to be able to confirm that you are a registered voter and that you are at the right polling location. It's faster and simpler than using a gigantic book. In most places, my understanding is that they still have the giant book, but the digital ones are a little bit easier to use. But if you're able to slow down that process, you might be able to slow down whether or not a voter can actually get in the door to cast their vote or, or any number of other parts of the, the actual voting process. Um, and if you can slow that down, then the person behind them has to wait, and then you've got a line out the door, and then people walking up to the polling place might decide they want to go home and try again later because there's a big line out the door. When it comes to elections, like these kind of small nudges can have huge effects, especially in, in a tightly contested election like this one, where we already assume that there's going to be a lot of confusion from COVID and people may be more motivated to vote than ever. Um, we, we can expect to see some problems already and, and just nudging those a bit more can cause a lot of issues. Mark that down as another threat to watch out for, but we haven't even gotten to the scariest one yet. Next up. We're going to talk about ransomware. You've heard of it. You know what that is. It's a threat that's held countless companies and people by the throat. It's when hackers steal critical data from you. And the only way you can get it back? Well, that's right. You've got to pay the price tag, even though you shouldn't. Just have a backup, and then if the hackers come with ransomware, you can tell them to go pound sand. But anyway, how could that impact the election? Could we see people break into government systems and then try to steal our votes? Well, we see voting websites being held hostage for millions of dollars. We're also going to talk about the biggest misconceptions voters have about election night, 
so stay right where you are. This is one finale you can't afford to miss. The future is in your hands. Voting is amazing, is that it gives us all a voice, but it can also be a burden. I mean, you've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. You have to research, do your due diligence, avoid misleading social media posts, and there are a ton. And I almost forgot, you also have to worry about so-called election engineers. From selfish trolls to foreign threats, there are a lot of people who want to hurt your vote. Now, we've talked about disinformation, voting machines, poll booths, and you've learned about website defacing, denial of service attacks, and voting delays. Now let's talk about one of the scariest scams out there, ransomware. A few decades ago, you had to be rich to be held for ransom, but you had to be like a celebrity or related to a wealthy family. Now anyone can be held hostage thanks to ransomware. Max, tell us more. I'm not aware of any uh, ransomware attacks linked to U.S. elections, but ransomware is really interesting as a, as a weapon because it can be very misleading about its intent. So ransomware uh, takes data hostage by encrypting it and then demanding ransom from the person who owns the data. So you want to get all the pictures on your computer back, you have to wire some Bitcoin to a specific wallet, and then you'll get the key to unlock your files on your computer. Um, It's a devastating kind of attack. It's really easy to distribute and it's very, very effective. And we saw a lot of it in the last five or so years. And how does ransomware threaten the elections? So because it has that like profit motive built into it, it can sometimes hide the fact that it could be used by politically motivated actors. So uh, the NotPetya ransomware, for example, was tied to uh, Russian operations in Ukraine. People thought at first that it was just regular ransomware, but it was very much targeted at specific locations as part of a larger campaign. So you can imagine a scenario where an important piece of election infrastructure or even just like a secondary piece of election infrastructure, like the servers that are hosting uh, the website that has the information about how to vote and where to vote on it, if that was attacked with ransomware and was suddenly unavailable, um, people might not initially realize that that's part of a coordinated attack. They might just think it's, oh, you know, another another piece of infrastructure that just got hit by ransomware. This kind of thing just happens. So it's the profit motive that hides other potential motivations um, behind it that makes ransomware so particularly insidious when it comes to elections. I think insidious is the perfect word. Now, let me tell you more about how ransomware could hurt the election. Anybody can be a victim of ransomware. And as it turns out, anything can also be a victim, too. Tech companies are already being hit, and officials think attacks will rise the closer we get to the actual election date. Listen to this. A Texas company called Tyler Technologies sells software that helps officials show the results on election night. According to the New York Times, outsiders tried to break into Tyler Tech systems, and they were probing systems all throughout America. At first, Tyler Tech thought, well, it's just a standard ransomware attack. You know, your data is encrypted, and then you have to pay the criminal to get it back. Uh Uh-uh. This hack went deeper than that. The company found out that people were trying to break into their clients' information. Now, Tyler Technologies didn't give any more details. I mean, I get it. They probably want to save what little privacy that they have left. But this is some crazy stuff we're saying. That story I just told, it's only one incident. There are a ton out there. Get this. Let me hit you with a shocking number. According to MSISoft, more ransomware attacks are hitting the American public sector than ever before. And of course, 
Most of these cyber criminals are from Russia and Eastern Europe. In 2019, there were about 966 attacks. I would venture to say there were more. And two-thirds of them went after state or local governments. So what's the general takeaway here? Security researchers are working hard to keep our election data safe, but they can't always keep up. One small town in Florida actually paid to get its data back. Atlanta, they refused. When the city's office was attacked, it stuck its chin up and kept its wallet closed. It's good for them. Unfortunately, the city also spent some more money fixing its systems, more than it probably would have spent on the ransom. So the bottom line here is you need to always have a backup. So just in case you do get hit with ransomware, is that you can always go to your backup and restore all your data. And as I said, you don't need to pay the piper. Max, we've talked all about the different threats voters face. We've taught our listeners all about election technology. Let's talk about trends. Are there any threats that are trending now that are hot? For example, are we seeing a bigger uptick in ransomware attacks than, say, denial of service attacks? Out of everything we've spoken about, what is the biggest threat? I don't have any insight into which ones are happening more than others, but it's a fairly safe bet that the um, social media campaigns are as prevalent this year as they were in 2016 in the intervening years. Um, Social media is a platform that allows for really cheap, really fast, really big engagements. Um, You can, anyone can set up an account and someone who's really motivated can set up thousands of accounts. Uh, so I, social media disinformation is probably the biggest, the biggest avenue by which people are going to engage with an, an election attack. That makes sense. After all, it's easier to spread a rumor than break into a computer. You can get a lot done by spreading a political meme, for example. You can reach people's minds. And when you do that, it's sort of like you're hacking the minds of voters. That said, <laughs> I think people should really be aware of sort of the inherent complexities in our electoral system, all of the things that go into an election. Um, Our elections are very decentralized. They're run by uh, like several thousand individual jurisdictions, each one operating slightly differently than the other. Um, A lot of these these are underfunded. They don't have the, the people or the manpower to do the kind of to do big elections and especially not to deal with uh, crises in an election. Um, so I, I really do encourage people to learn about how an election works in their area. First off, so that they know how it's supposed to go when you get there to vote, um, but also to become more involved. I, I personally do not think it is a controversial belief that it should be easy and straightforward for people to vote. I totally agree. It shouldn't be a struggle to cast your vote. So any tips to make it easier? And I I think if people can apply that pressure on their elected representatives, that would be a great way to improve election security. If people can easily vote, then it's much, much harder to get in the way of that process. But in terms of foreign and domestic attacks on our election, social media is by far the thing that people are going to see the most of. For sure. Max, let's talk about election night. There are a few misconceptions swirling around, so it's always a tense night. You're standing in front of your TV, nervously watching, and every station has extensive coverage of election night. But there's one mistake that people make during election night. What's that, you ask? It's expectations. That's right. Tell us more about what we can expect this election night, Max. So one thing that was impressed on me by several of the people I spoke with in the last couple of months while reporting on these stories, was that it's very likely that because of the increase in mail-in voting 
and other sort of COVID-related problems with our with voting this year, it's really likely that we won't have a complete picture of who won the election on the night of. That's right. You have to be patient. We have to expect some extra processing time. And more importantly than understanding that that's going to happen is understanding that that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with the election. If we don't know who the winner is for several days, that doesn't mean that our our votes were all changed and that it was under attack and that there's something nefarious going on. It might actually be the system working as designed to ensure that a correct count uh, came out of it. That's one of the biggest mistakes voters can make. When you're staying up on election night watching the news, it's so easy to get swept away by the drama. It really feels like you're part of an exciting historical moment. But the thing is, not everything goes as smoothly as we want it to. Actually, the process takes time. There's no set moment we can televise. There's no dramatic reveal that you're going to see at midnight. Voters really need to stay patient and calm. Don't get swept away by the last-minute conspiracy theories. So rather than like kind of trying to read the tea leaves on what's happening, I think people need to listen, try to listen to experts. They're much, much smarter people than me who I know are going to be going out after the election and, and saying whether or not there was huge problems with the vote this, this time around. Um, so I, I really encourage people to try to remain calm and accept that this is going to be a, a different kind of election year than it has been in the past. So we have to remember patience is a virtue. <laughs> this is always true, especially uh, especially in security. That's true, Max. Any last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Going into 2020, when I was talking with people in February about the election, it was a very different story because we, you know, in general, people were like, we pretty much got this figured out. Disinformation is going to be a problem. We more or less know how to run a good election. You know, it's not 100% perfect, but we're doing a better job than we ever have before. And it's there. It was a very cautiously rosy outlook. Yeah. And then COVID-19 hit. And this you know, pandemic, which has driven us all into our homes and has really changed our behaviors and is making it very dangerous to do normal things like voting, really changed uh, everything. That's been like one of the enormous change to our system. Like this year, people might have to wait in line to vote and they've never had to wait in line before because they can only let so many people into the polling place. People might vote by mail for the first time and voting by mail is a you know, completely accepted and understood system by voting. Every state actually has vote by mail in the form of absentee ballots. Like we, we do know how to do this, um, but most people might not have done it before. So that's going to be a strange new experience for them. We're all having to be flexible. These are really weird times. The pandemic's changing everything. And speaking of change, I'm curious about something. You've spoken to a lot of officials who set up security measures for the 2016 election. And of course, 2020 is a completely different beast. Are we still using the defenses that they set up or have things just changed too quickly? So I was really concerned that all that effort that we've made from 2016 until now had just been wasted, right? Because it's going to be a completely different environment. But the people I spoke to who, who are in charge of this stuff in the federal government were like, we've done a lot of really good work and it's still paying off. Like the efforts that we made to secure sort of the, the back end infrastructure of our elections, things like poll books, things like the website, things like uh, voter registration systems, like the efforts that have been made to secure that are still paying off in dividends. 
And there's good news to this. The tech we use can only improve from this point on. Max, I want to say thank you so much for coming in and joining us on this podcast. And thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for listening to part two of our Election Hackers podcast. So what'd you think? Did it help you become a more informed voter, a more informed person on social media? Please leave us a great review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. And once again, a huge thanks to Max Eddy for coming on to the show. And a huge shout out to our podcast producer and script writer. She's fabulous, Serena O'Sullivan. Thank you for all the hard work that you do, Serena. And a shout out to Cassie Taylor and Mike James, our producers. They're the ones who make the magic spark behind the scenes. And of course, none of this would be possible without you, our listeners. If you want more of a commando fix, check out our website. We've got so many detailed articles about any tech question you could possibly have. As a matter of fact, if you have a burning tech question, here's the deal. Call me up. I'd love to have you on my radio show. Just fill out the form over on our website. There's a special link on the right-hand side at commando.com that says, be a caller. Fill out that form and we'll get right back with you. And if you'd like to get my three-hour national radio show podcast, just one spot to get that. You're not going to find it on Apple, Google, or anyplace else. Just go to getkim.com and you sign up, get a profile. As a matter of fact, you get it free for 30 days. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. We offer discounts for seniors, military vets, and service personnel. But it's really cool. Aside from the podcast, you get the webcast, and you have full access to our Q&A forums. And we have some social media going on in the commando community, too. And get this. I don't track you. Mm -mm. And there are no ads. So you can get a free 30-day trial. Do it now while you're thinking about it over at GetKim.com because you also help support our small business, which is so very wonderful of you. I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And thanks for sharing. 